Uh, my name is Craig. I have the privilege of being the minister here. And we're going to be looking at uh, Numbers chapter 13 and, and into 14 this morning. I want to say hello to those who are listening online also because we discover each week. I discovered this week people from America who messaged me and said they listened to this as a family in America. People who I didn't know so uh, If there's no good churches in your area, I'm glad that you listen to this. But if there is, go there. Let me pray, actually, before, because I I do. I need the Holy Spirit's help not to say anything that will get me kicked out. Father God, I thank you that your word is inspired. Your word is authoritative. Your word speaks truth. And, Lord, your word is all we need to know who you are and what you have promised. And so, Lord, we just ask it as I come to your word that I would speak it with conviction, with clarity, with compassion, and with a sense of just what you have spoken to me this week as I've studied. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if... I think there's different categories of people. There's people who are complainers and non-complainers. And I'm not just talking about negative people or gossips or whatever. I'm talking about when you don't get the service you want. Maybe you go out to a restaurant. Maybe you buy something. Maybe you go on holidays to a hotel and it doesn't live up to your expectations. There's people here who will complain. There's people here who will make their uh, displeasure and dissatisfaction very clearly known. I'm from a family of one of them, okay? Um, My mum manages to get, like, vouchers for free holidays and everything. Um, And I have done it in the past. I had a flight a number of years ago when I lived in America, and the air hostess spilt hot tea over me not once but twice uh, during the flight. Um, I think she just got nervous around me. (laughs) It happens. Um, what happens? I can't help it. Um, but uh, I managed to get a $500 voucher for a flight out of it, so it was pretty good. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm going next week. Um, but uh, I'm joking. Um, but uh, there's complainers, and then there's others who just prefer to keep it quiet, you know. No matter how bad the food is, no matter if there's cockroaches in the hotel, no matter if there's raw sewage running through the middle of the bedroom, you're not going to make a fuss. You just grin and bear it and get on with it. And uh, I I came across some uh, real complaints. Now, these are real complaints received by Thomas Cook Holidays from dissatisfied customers. Okay, so these are real. And I want to read just a number of them. On my holiday to Goa in India, I was disgusted to find that almost every restaurant served curry. I don't like spicy food. (laughs) Fair enough. I like this one. Little PG. Uh, They should not allow topless sunbathing on the beach. It was very distracting for my husband who just wanted to relax. Yeah, that's written by Mal's wife. Um, Malcolm's, not Mal. (laughs) Some of you thought New Horizon was really good this week for him. It wasn't that good. Um, The next one, we booked an excursion to a water park, but no one told us we had to bring our own swimsuits and towels. We assumed they would be included in the price. Yeah. Although the brochure, this is a different one, although the brochure said that there was a fully equipped kitchen. There was no egg slicer in the drawers. <laughs> I like this one. The brochure said, no hairdressers at the resort. We're trainee hairdressers, and we think they knew and made us wait longer for service. <laughs> Take you to think about that one a wee bit. 
I was bitten by a mosquito. The brochure did not mention mosquitoes. And this is the best one, the last one. My fiancé and I requested twin beds when we booked, but instead we were placed in a room with a king bed. We now hold you responsible and want to be reimbursed for the fact that I became pregnant. This would not have happened if you had put us in the room that we booked. Complainers, eh? Today we're going to look at a story of some people grumbling and complaining in Numbers 13 and 14. What caused it? Well, we need to go back a little bit in the story. It begins some 650 to 700 years before this, where God calls a guy called Abram, who later became Abraham, and says, out of you I want to make a nation. I want to form a people who are going to be my people my community, a people who display my glory to the nations, who declare my praise and who point the nations to me. And Abraham has a wife called, Abram has a wife called Sarai, he later becomes Sarah, and he's an old man. And God says three things, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you seed, in other words a child, and I'm going to give you blessing. And look at what it says in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. Abram went as the Lord told him. And they set out for the land of Canaan. That's important. Canaan was the land that God had showed him. And they arrived there. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So God speaks 650 years before Moses and says to this guy called Abraham, Canaan is the promised land. I am going to give you a land. I am going to give you seed. I am going to bless you in the land. And I still believe that holds today. Not trying to be controversial. Just saying. I don't believe God has gone back on his covenant. He says, whoever blesses them, I will bless. Whoever curses them, I will curse. And history has shown that to be true. But I'm not going to get into that. That's for another day. But so, so Abram goes there. Or Abram moves out. He receives a promise. Abram has a child called Isaac. Yeah, Isaac has a son called Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of them is called Joseph. Joseph is carried off. He's betrayed by his brothers. He's sold as a slave into Egypt. He is a prisoner for 13 years. And then when he turns 30, he becomes prime minister because there's a famine. Because there's a famine, his family come down and they are reconciled with Joseph. And they move to Egypt. And so you have all these Hebrews now living in Egypt. They begin to multiply, they begin to grow, they begin to develop. A new pharaoh, a new king arrives on the throne. He knows nothing about the history of Joseph and how he saved the people. And he begins to get intimidated and terrified by the number of Hebrews there. And so he begins to treat them brutally. He begins to enslave them. And for 430 years, God's people are slaves in Egypt. Sometimes it's just good to see the bigger picture of this. For 430 years, these people are slaves. They're brutally mistreated. And then God one day shows up to a guy called Moses, a guy who was a Hebrew by birth, but but brought up in Egypt. He was too Hebrew to be fully Egyptian and too Egyptian to be fully Hebrew. As he was growing up. He always felt a little bit awkward. He always felt a little bit 
uncomfortable. He never really felt like he had a place. And yet that awkwardness and that uncomfortableness later becomes the very thing that God uses. And I want to say to you, the thing that can be the thing that you feel insecure about, because Moses growing up didn't know why he was rejected by his parents. All he knew was that Pharaoh's daughter had found him. So he grew up with this sense of probably my mom didn't want me. I was rejected. And yet that rejection and that awkwardness later became the very thing God uses to deliver his people. And sometimes the pain in our past and the the things that we feel most insecure and awkward about are the very things that God uses years later to impact people, to free people, to liberate people, and to impact this world for Jesus. And so God shows up to Moses. Look at what it says in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. I have come down to rescue them. This is God speaking from the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and the worst of all ladies, Cellulite. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing me. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. Now, if I'm Moses, I'm like, I like the first part. Where God says, I'm coming down to rescue them. And then God says, you go and rescue them. Which one is it? (laughs) You see, God says, I'm going to do something. Go and do it. Because God on earth works through people. People like you and me. People who are flawed. Moses at this stage has been living in the backside of the wilderness for 40 years because he killed somebody. He thinks his time is over. He thinks he's a failure. He thinks he's a husband. He thinks God can't use him anymore. And suddenly in the middle of an ordinary day when he's looking after a few of his father-in-law's sheep, God shows up and says, now's the time. Now's the time. You might think your past has disqualified you, but actually the last 40 years have just been preparing you. Because for 40 years you've been leading stubborn sheep through the desert, and for the next 40 years you're going to be leading my stubborn sheep through the desert. Because nothing is wasted with God. Everything is a preparation, even if we don't realize it. But here's the thing that I noticed in this. God says, I have heard my people's cry. 430 years these people have been enslaved and suddenly they cry out to God. Why didn't they do it year one? Year two? How bad did things have to get? It actually got so bad that they were forced to make bricks without straw. Things got so bad that they cried out to God. Sometimes they only cry out to God when things are bad. And God sometimes will let us live at the level we choose to live at. If you don't want to depend on God, if you don't want to press into his promises, he will let you live there and we will see that later. So the people cry out to God. And what does God do? God speaks to Moses. They talk to God, God talks to Moses. Do you see that? When I talk to God, I want God to talk back to me. They talk to God, God talks to Moses. And they're standing there going, God's not answering us. God is answering them, they just can't see the answer. 
Sometimes God is talking about you behind your back and you don't even realize it. Sometimes God's having conversations about you with people and places and you don't even realize it. And six months later, somebody comes along and says, we were talking about you. It happened to us when we got back from America. We moved to the Causeway Coast because we were unemployed. We moved to Port Stewart because we were unemployed. Figured if there's anywhere we're going to walk the streets unemployed, let's do it in Port Stewart. The week my sabbatical ends, the senior pastor, Alan Scott of the Causeway Coast Vineyard, calls me in, says, can I have coffee? He said, before you went on your sabbatical, the trustees and I said that if you ever move back here, we want to employ you for this church. We've already set aside the budget. They were having conversations about me four months before I even knew they were talking about me because God had put it on their heart. God sometimes is setting you up and you don't even realize it. He's having conversations behind your back and you don't think he's answering your prayers. He's just not answering them to you, but he's answering them to other people because most of the blessings he wants to get to you don't come falling from heaven. They come through other people. I have never had money fall from the sky. I would love it if it did. But I have had provision through other people that God has spoken to. I have never had encouragement And letters fall from the sky. But I have had people encourage me, saying, I just feel God wants to say this to you. I've never had an angel show up that I know of, but I have had people prophesy into my life. Most of what God wants to get to you doesn't come from the sky. It comes through other people. And so you're praying to God for an answer, and you're saying, God, why are you being so quiet and God speaking somewhere else? And he's bringing people into your life to push you towards the place and the plan that he has for you. The Hebrews have no idea that help is on the way. And so God sends Moses after some gentle persuasion. And God does great miracles. And the people are freed. The Red Sea is opened. There's the ten plagues. The Red Sea is opened. He guides them by the, when we read this earlier, the pillar of fire by day and the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. He provides manna in the wilderness. He takes, he guides them and he provides for them. But God's purpose was never just to bring them out of slavery. It was to bring them into the promised land. God's purpose was never just to bring them out of bondage, but to bring them into his inheritance. And God's plan for you as a Christian is not just to save you from sin, but to bring you into all that he has for you. Your inheritance is the place that God has for you, the promises God has for you. It's the territory God wants you to occupy. It's the place that God wants you to influence. When we talk about Canaan often, and particularly in hymns, we're thinking of heaven. Isn't that right? All those old hymns talk about crossing Canaan's shore. Canaan is not heaven. Because you know why? Because in Canaan they had to fight battles in heaven. You don't have to fight any battles. Canaan is your inheritance here on earth. Canaan is the promises that God has for you. The blessings that God has for you. The inheritance God has for you. The place and the call and the assignments God has for you right now. You don't get to Canaan when you die. You receive your inheritance by faith and by patience and by obedience here on earth earth and so they're on the edge look at numbers 13 1 to 3 the lord said to moses send some men to explore the land of canaan which i am giving that's key not that i might give not that if they're good i'll give it to them not if 
they do all the right things. He just says, I'm giving it to them. I'm going to give it to them. He said the same to Moses in chapter 3 of Exodus. I'm giving it to them. It's theirs. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. In other words, 12 people. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of the leaders, all of them were the leaders of the Israelites. So this is about two years into the journey, two years after they've come out of Egypt, okay? And they're right on the edge. The desert of Paran is right on the edge of Canaan. They're right at the border. The place that God has promised, the place that God has spoken about, not just to them, but for hundreds of years, right back to Abram. God said, this is your land. This is the fulfillment. This is the pivotal moment. This is the key time. They're right on the edge. They can see God's promise. They can smell God's promise. They can almost taste it. It's right there in front of them. They're at the border and God says, go check it out. Before you enter in and en masse, go check it out. Do a recce. Do a test drive before you buy the car. See how good it is. I'm giving you a Lamborghini. Take a test drive in it. I'm giving you a gift. Take a test. Like, like he, here's the deposit of it. I want you to get a taste of it. Go and see how good it is. It's like a movie trailer. It's like a commercial. It's like a foretaste. I want you to go and see how great it is so you can come back and tell everyone else and they will be so fired up and so motivated that they can't wait to get in there. That's kind of what the plan is here. And God often gives us a preview of what he's going to do. God often gives us just a glimpse or a foretaste of our future. God sometimes goes into our future, sees what's there and comes back and gives us a movie trailer or a prophetic word or some sort of down payment or deposit to motivate us to get us there. He gives us a glimpse. It could be that, that you want to do youth work. And I mean, Okay, for me, when I was 17, in lower sick, you have to go and do a work placement somewhere. All my friends went to be with a doctor or a dentist or whatever it was. I went to be with the minister in St. Mark's for four days. They'd never done that as a work placement before. But in those four days, I got a taste of what God had for my future. That was 25 years ago. God gave me a glimpse. At times, he will do that in different ways. He, will, he did it with Joseph. He gave him dreams. He had two dreams about his future, but it would be 17 years. He gave David a glimpse, because David is anointed king, but between being anointed and appointed, there was 15 to 17 years. But what does happens? as soon as David is anointed king, he goes back to the sheep, but then he gets a phone call one day, he gets a text message, he gets a, a Facebook message. Pharaoh needs, or, 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 or Saul, sorry, needs someone to play the harp. Your name has come up. Can you go and do it? And for the next years, where does David end up? In the palace, observing the way a king lives. David is called to be king. He gets a preview of what it's like to be king. He learns the protocol of the palace years before he ends up in the palace. And God sometimes gives us a glimpse of what he has ahead for us. He gives us a little preview, a little foretaste. It could be a, in a relationship where you meet somebody, and maybe even that relationship doesn't work out if you're single. 
But through meeting them, you go, that's the sort of person I now want to meet. I, I've, I've dated other people and husband, but now that's the sort. For me, I never had a clear picture of the sort of person I wanted to marry, but I kind of had a, what I call a silhouette. Do you know what I mean? I kind of had this vague picture of the type of person I wanted to marry, of the character I wanted them to have, of the way I just, the sort of person I knew I I could, uh, and when I met Becky, I just knew that she fitted that silhouette, that she fitted that person that for years I had thought that I would marry. Uh, And sometimes God does that. He just gives you a little, a blurry picture, a silhouette. Maybe it's a job where where you go and you, you, you do something, you help somebody out for three or four days and you go, I love this. This is just, and then suddenly this passion grows within you and you go and study it. And you, maybe it's a house. Maybe you're at a friend's house. Maybe you see a house. Maybe you read, see a house in a magazine or a brochure. And maybe that isn't the house that you get, but it's a taste. It's a picture of what God has for you. And God's plan is that you would possess on a permanent basis that place that you've just been visiting. He doesn't give you the preview just so you can enjoy the preview, but it's so you can possess permanently what he's shown you. So they spend 40 days scouting out the land. What do they find? Well, look at Numbers 13, 23 to 26. When they reached the valley of Eshcol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of Grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh, in the desert of Paran. They reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. So in one sense, the mission has been a success. For 40 days, they say they've covered about 500 miles. From top to bottom, east to west, they've covered the whole territory. And they come back and they say, it is exactly like God said. God always said it was a land flowing with milk and honey. That doesn't mean there was milk flowing down the rivers. It just means that there was abundance. There was honey. It was a sweet land. There was prosperity. There was blessing there. It is exactly like God has promised. I mean, look at this bunch of grapes. There's two of us carrying. We've been carrying this bunch of grapes around for 27 days now. I mean, for goodness sake. But look at the size of this bunch of grapes. This is massive. This is how good this place is. In fact, God probably understated it a bit. This is incredible. It didn't even take miracle grow. Fertilizer. I mean, look at these things. It flows with milk and honey. Every single Thing God said was true, but. Next slide. But. But the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. And we even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live in the sea along the Jordan. Here's where things take a turn. Here's where they snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. But, but, (laughs) 
I have a said about but when people say, you know, I just, I, I, I really want to encourage you and I don't want you to be offended, but that's when I duck. <laughs> my, I'll not tell you my saying, okay. Everything before a but's bull, okay? <laughs> that's just an expression I came up with years ago. When people say but, everything before it is just a build up, okay, to where they punch you in the head. Um, but, and it's a big but, and the but butts its way into our lives and ruins everything. But all of God's promises are true. In fact, they're even better than true. But how often do we use the word but to justify disobedience? To do what we want even though it's not what God said. I know God said this, but... I know I'm married to this person, but this girl in work is so attractive. I know I really shouldn't be watching this stuff, but. I know I shouldn't be thinking like this, but. I know this deal is a little bit shady and a little bit unethical, but. I know I shouldn't be dating this person, but. I know I should do this, serve, give, be generous, forgive, whatever that is. But. The but changes everything. You see, that little three-letter word changes everything because small decisions have a big impact on our lives. That's what I've discovered. Small choices, they might temporarily comfort us, but they can lead to permanent discomfort. Because temporary decisions have long-term consequences. I read something recently, a few things actually. What I do is I I read things and then I put them in Evernote. And uh, I think this is a couple of small things lead to big consequences. In 1993, a Boeing 747 lost two engines and crashed into an apartment complex, killing 43 people. What caused a $350 million plane to crash? It was one measly four millimeter microfracture in one of the fuse pins. Four millimeters in a fuse pin caused 43 people to die. More recently, the train or the tram that crashed in December last year, killing seven people in Croydon. Do you know what happened? The driver had what they call micro sleep. He just dozed off for a second. And 43, or seven people were killed. Micro-sleep, they call it. That's what the newspaper called it, micro-sleep. He just dozed for a second. We've all done it, haven't we? Just, you're driving. I have friends who have driven over roundabouts. Micro-sleep. Not true. <laughs> Micro-sleep. Small things have big impact. When we're making decisions, they may feel like small decisions at the time. But small decisions can have permanent consequences. Temporary decisions can have long-term consequences. 
You see, the problem with these guys was they expected the promised land to be handed to them on a silver platter. They expected just to walk on in there and all the Canaanites would just lie down and go, take our land, here you go, no problem, we'll move over, we'll make it clear, take our stuff, take our houses. They didn't realize it was a battle they were going to have to fight. God had given it to them, but there was still a battle to fight. The goal and the mission was never to determine if it was possible to get the land. God had already promised them over and over again. But because God has given us something doesn't mean we have to do nothing. Because God has promised you something doesn't mean you have to do nothing. God's promises are not all automatic. We inherit them by obedience and faith. I have friends, I was in contact with a friend a week or two ago who I went through school with, who I went to church with, who I played in worship bands with, who I got baptized in the spirit with. And he was so much more gifted and called and anointed than I was. And yet he's not following Christ today because he made decisions along the way not to. And I, I love him dearly and he, it was lovely to connect with him. But he has made choices. And he had words over his life like I had words over my life. But he made choices along the way to go in a different direction. Your choices are real choices with real consequences. And yes, there is grace to forgive your sin, but grace does not change the consequences. It will change your eternal destination. (laughs) You won't be punished in hell for it if you receive Christ. But if you get pregnant because you're sleeping around and you repent, you're still pregnant. Shocker. If you do something illegal or unethical and you get caught by the law and you repent, you still are going to face the courts. God will forgive you, but there's still consequences. And in our hyper-grace culture in the church, we need to be aware of that. Because there's this hyper-grace thing now where it almost seems you can do whatever you want and grace just covers it all. I believe grace covers everything, but there's still consequences for sin. Because sin is serious. Sin destroys lives. Sin ruins families. Sin destroys communities. And God takes sin very seriously and just because God has said he has given us something doesn't mean we do nothing we receive it we contend for it we possess his promises we take hold by faith of what he has made available salvation is even like that isn't it salvation is available for every person on planet earth the blood of Jesus is sufficient for every single person God's desire is that every person gets saved it says that That none should perish. Will every person get saved? No. Why? Because we take hold of God's promises. We take hold of what God has made available through faith. And it's the same not just before we're saved, but after we're saved. That God has promises, he has plans for us, but because of our lack of faith and obedience, we may never enter into them. If I was to hold out money now and say, here's 20 pounds in my hand, if I had it, I would. Um... I could hold it out here, but you have to come and receive it. It's available, but until you come and take it out of my hand, it's not yours. And the word in the Bible for receive is the word lambano. And it's not a passive receive fall out of the sky. It is taking hold off. It is grabbing hold off. 
And God gives us his promises, but he wants us. And sometimes the promises are on the other side of a problem. Sometimes the greatest blessings are on the other side of a battle. But we look at the problem and we look at the battle and we think, I'm just going to stay where I am because I don't really want to fight for that. But faith faces fear. Look at the next verse, Numbers 13, 30. We're nearly done. He says, by faith. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should surely go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. So there's all this negativity and in the middle of it, one voice speaks up and his name is Caleb. And he basically says, shut up. Everybody, shush. We can do this. Let's Go right now. Why go right now? Because the longer you 10 guys keep spreading your negativity, the bigger the giants are getting and the more discouraged everyone's coming, becoming. So let's do it now. Sometimes the longer you wait, the more you talk yourself out of something. When God says something, don't hang around for six months to pray about it. Obey. Do it. Because you will find every excuse not to do it. And you will find yourself a year later going, God never came through in that. Actually, you never came through. You're waiting on God and God has been waiting for 12 months on you to get off your blessed assurance and step into what he has for you. And Caleb says, shush, let's just do it. We can do it. I know there's giants. I know there's opposition. I know there's a formidable force to be reckoned with. But the land is amazing. It is fertile and prosperous. You see, all the spies, all 12 of them, saw the same thing. They all saw the grapes and they all saw the giants. Faith is not denying reality. Faith is not denying the facts. Faith is seeing the facts through the lens of a God who is greater than the facts. Faith is saying, yes, the giants are big, but my God is bigger. Yes, there is opposition. Yes, there are problems. Yes, there is an enemy. But we have the promises of God. We have the presence of God. We have the power of God. And if God is for us, who can stand against us? Faith does not deny or ignore reality. You know, sometimes in hyper-faith circles, we, we don't want to make a negative declaration. Somebody's sick, they're down of the flu, and you say, don't mention it. Don't make a negative declaration. If you're down of the cold, just say, I'm down of the cold. That's not, that's not faith. But also believe in a God who can heal you from anything. We don't deny that somebody has cancer. If somebody has cancer, we don't bury our heads in the sand and say, I don't have cancer. If you have cancer, get treatment, get prayer, but believe God can work through treatment and prayer and bring healing. And right until the last moment, keep believing. We don't deny the facts. We just see the facts through the lens of the possibility of the power and presence and promises of God. And we see them differently than the world sees them. We see them differently than the majority because it was 10 to 2. And I want to say to you that the majority are not always right. In our culture today, the majority are not always right. When it comes to marriage, the majority are not always right. When it comes to sexuality, the majority are not always right. When it comes to mar- or, 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 or to, to uh, moral issues, the majority in our culture are not always right. In fact, the majority are probably wrong because Jesus said the gate is narrow and the road is narrow. 
And so don't be thinking if the majority think it, it must be right. As a people of God, we never follow the majority. We are a countercultural, upside-down kingdom. And if the majority are doing it, it's probably the other way. They just see things from a different perspective. They see things from a different reality. And as God's people, we see things from a different perspective and a different reality. There's a little story about two shoe salesmen who travel to uh, the remote Africa to some tribes to try and sell them some shoes. And one man calls his wife the moment he lands and he says, this, Honey, I'm coming home. There's no hope here. Nobody here wears shoes. There's no one to sell shoes to and he gets the next flight home. The second man calls his wife and says, Honey, you wouldn't believe what I found here. There's so much opportunity. No one here is wearing shoes. I can sell shoes to the whole country. (laughs) Same situation, different perspective. And so many times we can look at the same thing but see it in a totally different way. Through a different lens. The majority had the facts right, but here's what they'd that got wrong, that left God out of the equation. You see, and I don't think I have the verse on the screen, but in verse, when they're reporting back in verse 27 to 13, they say this, they talk about the land that Moses sent us. But everywhere else in scripture, they talk, when God is saying, it's the land the Lord your God is giving you. The land Moses sent us, the land the Lord your God has given you. They leave God out of it and they put a human in it. They leave God out of the equation and the determining factor on whether they would enter the land or not wasn't the size of the opposition but the promises and the power and the presence of the living God. And when you forget the Lord your God, your perspective will always be wrong and the opposition will seem bigger, your fears will increase and you'll be overwhelmed. Joshua and Caleb have a perspective of faith. They're Their perspective is this, we can and we must. I am so glad we have a perspective of faith in this church. We're a people of faith. We have a management team of faith. We have a leadership team of faith. We have volunteers of faith. At the minute we're praying and we're seeking for a building that seats over 400. And you know what? It feels like it's been a struggle. It feels like no land's available. It feels like we're hurting. But we're believing and we're starting just to see a little change. We're starting to see a little bit of breakthrough because we are not going to give up just because they say there's no land in the area. There's nothing available. Across the road's too expensive. All of that. We are saying, you know what? If God wants us to have a building, we will have a building of 400. If God wants us to reach Craig Alvin with the gospel of Christ, we will reach Craig Alvin with the gospel of Christ. And no planning laws and no, no building restrictions and none of that matters because if God has it for us, he can change it. He can open doors that no man can shut. We saw that last week. God's promises will not fail. His purposes will prevail. So Caleb's faith begins to annoy the grumblers because people of faith always annoy complainers, don't they? Positive people always really get on the nerves of negative Nancys. And so look at... I'm trying to think of a man's name beginning with it. Normans. Negative Nancy's and Normans. Although Norman here is one of the most positive, faith-filled men I know. Uh, Numbers 13, 31, 32. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. Just, Caleb says, we can. We can't. We can. 
We can't. Sounds like some vestry meetings I've had in other churches in the past. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, this land, we explored, devours those living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. They spread a bad report. They spread, they spread, because negativity is contagious. (laughs) That's what I have discovered. Negativity is contagious. Negative people love to spread negativity. They love to feed it and grow it and and justify it by getting other people to go, you know, you're right. It's never going to work. That's never going to happen. I never really liked that person anyway. And he's a, you know, look at him up there. He's a heck Because negativity loves company. Misery loves company. People who are negative will be surrounded by negative people because positive people don't want to talk to you. Just a hint. Negativity is toxic in a culture and cynicism will destroy you as much as sin will destroy you. Negativity is toxic in a church. It's toxic in a community. And what they do is they start to exaggerate and that's what negative people do. They start to, if they don't get their own way immediately, they don't care that it's about the truth. Never let the truth get in the way of telling your lies. So they start to massage the truth and exaggerate. Look at what they say. This land devours those living in it. All the people there are huge. Which one is it? That's a contradiction. It devours all the inhabitants. The inhabitants are huge. They start even not making sense. And that's what you find with people who are so determined to get their own way that they will say anything. If you have a strong enough agenda, you don't care about the truth. And they keep going. Look at this, verse 33, a grasshopper mentality. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. Look at what they say. We saw, we seemed. We saw, we seemed. The root of the problem was was that all of their decisions was based on what they saw and how things seemed and not what God said. And the root of most of my problems in my life are what I see, what I feel, how things seem, and not what God said. When I start believing how I feel, how things seem, what I see, instead of what God has said, then I shrink down, I back off, I retreat, I get into fear, I get into insecurity, and I don't want to press into God's promises. Why? Because I'm more focused on me than I am on Him. And they don't realize that God's greatest opportunities often come disguised as the biggest problems in your life. Opportunities are always wrapped up in problems. The blessing is found in the midst of the battle. The miracle is hidden in a mess. Look at what they say. This is really important. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. Now, I don't want to get all psychobabbly and self-help here, okay? That's not my plan. I don't want to do a Tony Robbins on you here or anything like that. That's not my, you know, I don't want to get all American and Californian here. But, but I can't get past the significance of this if you're from California. I mean everyone else. The problem wasn't so much how they saw God. The problem was how they saw themselves. It wasn't even how they saw the giants. It was how they saw themselves. We were like grasshoppers. In the ancient world, the grasshopper was the smallest 
edible animal. They weren't defeated by the giant out there. They were defeated by the grasshopper in here. By insecurity, inadequacy and inferiority. You see, it wasn't immorality or idolatry that stopped them. We can understand that. Immorality, sin, sexual sin. And that has stopped them in the past. Idolatry, the golden calf, we can understand that. It wasn't either of those things. It was insecurity, inferiority, and inadequacy. These were the chosen people of God, rescued by God, delivered by miracles, led by the presence of God, that the promises and power of God, and yet they saw themselves as grasshoppers. Look at what it says. We looked the same to them. First of all, how did they know they looked the same to them? Did they go around asking all the Canaanites, do we look like grasshoppers to you? I mean, really, think, when you think about this, it doesn't make sense. How do we look to you? What animal would you say we look like? <laughs> Seriously. You know what? They're making it up. They're projecting onto them what they believe about themselves. And we do that. When you think you're a grasshopper, you think everybody sees you as a grasshopper, and they probably do, because you teach people how to treat you by how you see yourself. Like I say, I'm not trying to get psychobabbly here, but I heard Dr. Phil say something years ago, and it has stuck with me. You teach people how to treat you. And some of us spend our lives complaining about how other people treat us when they're just treating us the way we treat ourselves. If you treat yourself with disrespect, don't be surprised if they treat you with disrespect. Ladies, if you're in a relationship with a guy who treats you like rubbish, it's probably because you're accepting the rubbish, because you don't believe that you deserve better. Raise your standard, raise the bar and get out of there. And find someone who loves you for who you are. We teach people how to treat us. People treat you like you treat yourself. People see you how you see yourself. And you can see it when you meet people. It's given away by their posture, their words. Their... When you praise them, how they respond, oh, I, I, they get all uncomfortable. By criticism, you criticize them and they just go off like crazy because they're so insecure. How they respond to difficulty, they're just overwhelmed by every small difficulty. Because here's the thing, when you see yourself as a grasshopper, everything else you look at seems like a giant. This isn't about narcissism or self-esteem. This is about seeing yourself as God sees you and knowing your identity in Christ. And that's why in Ephesians 1, Paul is at labors to say, you're holy, you're called, you're chosen, you're, you're the people of God, you're forgiven, you're redeemed. He wants to tell them who they are before he tells them how to live because we will always live out of our identity. Romans 8, he does the same. You're the children of God. 
We will always live out of the way we see ourselves. And so we need to see ourselves not as the world sees us, not even as we see us, but as the Bible sees us, as God sees us. We need to declare over our lives the truth of what God says about us. Because I know many gifted and called Christians who have never stepped into what God has for them. And in some cases it has been immorality, but most of the time it has been insecurity. And I know that in my own life. This has been a battle of mine for most of my life, I want to tell you. It's only the last few years that I'm beginning to come to grips with this. And I still have my moments where I feel, some days I feel like I can take on the world, and some days I feel like crawling into a corner, giving up, and going back to doing something else. I have battled insecurity and inferiority, and there's times I'm around other people and I feel so insecure and inferior to them because they feel so much gifted than I am, so much more talented than I am. They've done so much more with their lives than I have, and I feel like shrinking down and shutting up. And yet, in those moments, I have to remind myself that God hasn't called me to be them. God has called me to be me. And God hasn't called you to be anyone else. He has called you to be you. He created you as you are. Even the stuff you don't like, God loves. He doesn't love sin. But your quirkiness, your weirdness, your idiosyncrasies, those little quirky things about you, I have had to learn, you know what? God uses that. Like my stupid, weird sense of humor, God somehow uses that. Drives my wife mad, but God uses it. She actually thinks I'm really funny. Um, I tell her it all the time. But honestly, my inappropriateness at times, God even uses that. I can't be appropriate. I would die up here if I had to be appropriate every week, okay? And I don't mind alienating a few people because if you leave after that, better than leaving now than after six years. Because I'm probably not going to change that much at this stage in my life, okay? Like I kind of have this negative marketing thing I do where I kind of want to push anybody away who... He's going to make my life a nightmare for the next three years anyway. <laughs> Just being really honest. There's lots of churches in the area that we can recommend you to where the ministers are much more pleasant and polite than I am. Just saying. We could do with your seat as well if you're, <laughs> if you're grossly offended by me. Don't send me an email. Send it to Coon Becky. <laughs> but we all battle with it. You know what? That's the secret. No matter how confident the person beside you looks, the person in work looks, no matter how secure you think they are and how much more self-assured you think they are than you, can I let you into a secret? They're really insecure. In their quieter moments, they're really insecure. They're just better at hiding it than you are. You look at me up there and you probably think that guy doesn't battle insecurity so much. I want to tell you it has been the biggest battle of my life. More than anything. Insecurity, inferiority, inadequacy. And yet I know the calling of God on my life. And every Sunday morning, I have to remind myself as I drive to church, I am called, I am appointed, and I give myself a little pep talk every Sunday. If you drive past me, you'll see me talking to myself. You'll think I'm on my phone, that's how I make it look, but I'm preaching to myself before I preach to you because David strengthened himself in the Lord, and so do I. Don't let insecurity stop you from stepping into what God has for you. 
And you know, if I was the devil, which I'm not, some of you might think I'm not far off it, but I'm not. But if I was the devil, and I was trying to stop you stepping into what God has for you, I could put giant obstacles and opposition in your way, and that might work. But do you know what might be more effective? If I could get in your ear. If I could get in your ear and just whisper over and over again, you're nothing but a grasshopper. You're a nobody. You're worthless. Nobody can ever love you. Look at the mess you've made of your life. You couldn't even hold your marriage together. You couldn't even get a job. You couldn't even find someone to love you. Look at what you did back then. Look at how you hurt that person. Look at how you struggle with lust. God could never use someone like you. You're a failure. You're too ugly. You're too fat. You're too broken. I could keep giving you flashbacks of that one thing you did in the past that you deeply regret and that brings you shame. That's what I would do if I was the devil. And that would be so much more effective than putting a giant in front of you. You don't need a giant when you think you're a grasshopper. That's why the Bible says be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The problem was these people had been slaves their whole lives. They had known nothing but slavery and now they were free. They were free physically but mentally and emotionally they were still slaves. Their location and their position had changed but their mind hadn't. And sometimes we can just take our slave mentality or our baggage from place to place thinking a new place will sort it out. (laughs) A new job will sort it out. A new relationship will sort it out. A new church will sort it out. I'll be happy if I get this. And, the, and actually, you know what the common denominator is? You. That you haven't dealt with the root issue. And that is the renewal of your mind. And the New Testament constantly tells us, become who you already are in Christ. And I'm going to finish up here. But the sad thing is, and this is a sad story. It's not a story with a happy ending, I'm afraid. My wife loves movies with happy endings. If it's got a negative ending, it just ruins it for her. But it's a cautionary tale. Because for the next 38 years, they wandered in the wilderness. And look at what they say. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt. Really? Like, really? You'd rather die as a slave than die trying to take the land? Or in this wilderness? And you know what? That's exactly what happened. They turn around towards the direction of Egypt and everyone over 20 dies in the wilderness because God gives them what they want. The worst thing that can happen sometimes is God gives you what you want. They prophesied their own future. God will allow you to live on whatever level you settle for. And I have discovered this, that I will only go as far as my faith and obedience lets me. God has given me promises, but they're not automatic. I inherit them through faith and obedience. And Israel are right on the edge. 
but they want to turn around. And I feel some of us today are right on the edge. We're right on the edge of taking a step of faith. We're right on the edge of making a decision that we know we need to make. We're right on the edge of making a change in our lives. We're right on the edge of becoming a Christian. We're right on the edge of stepping up to serve. We're right on the edge of a significant decision. It might be a spiritual decision. It could be something completely, but you're right on the edge. And this is where the fear kicks in. Right on the edge. Because you know what? It's much easier for the devil to stop someone before they've started moving than it is when they're moving. And if he can unleash all of hell against you just as you're about to make the decision to step forward, he can maybe keep you stuck where you are. But once you get moving, it's a lot harder to stop you. And some of you are right on the edge. And God is saying, will you take that step? Will you believe me? Will you take hold of that for which I have taken hold of you? Or will you shrink back? I wonder for the next 38 years as they wandered in the wilderness, did they think about what could have been? I wonder did they sit at night and go, why didn't we just cross over? I don't want to live my life like that. You don't want to live your life like that. I don't want to get to 70 or 80 and sit and go, why didn't I take that risk? Why did I play it safe? just want to read something and I'm done. And I'm really done this time. If I can find it. It's a thing called the common cold of the soul. The common cold of the soul is the sinful patterns of behavior that never get confronted and changed. Abilities and gifts that never get cultivated and deployed until weeks become months and months turn into years. And one day you're looking back on a life of deep, intimate, gut-wrenchingly honest conversations you never had. Great bold prayers you never prayed exhilarating risks you never took, sacrificial gifts you never offered, and you're sitting in a recliner with a shriveled soul and forgotten dreams, and you realize there was a world of desperate need and a great God calling you to be part of something bigger than yourself. You see the person you could have been but did not become. You never followed your calling. 